Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School for Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Now that Elon Musk owns Twitter, will he fight disinformation or encourage it? And we cover all things American in politics with Reggie Cicchini, Washington reporter, of course, for Global News. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's start with what's going to be happening in the nation's capital, uh, where Peter Slowly, the uh, former Ottawa chief of police, uh, continues his testimony today in front of the federal government's uh, committee that is uh, looking into the use of the Emergencies Act. Uh, Mr. Slowly has previously stated that he felt that the force could have done anything differently, nothing at all, in light of what they were facing. And that is very unfortunate because public trust and confidence in any police service, I believe, is the number one public safety factor. When any police service loses significantly public trust and confidence, that in of itself is a massive public safety threat and risk. It materializes in so many ways. And unfortunately, as quickly as the events unfolded on the morning and the afternoon of the Saturday, public opinion against the Ottawa Police Service and its members turned just as quickly and to the same unprecedented levels that were unrelenting, at least from my entire experience, up until February 15th. Uh, That testimony continues today. So how is this going over? And uh, I'm just concerned about the way people are going to perceive what uh, the former chief is saying. And of course, the, uh, well, the relationship is going to be to the committee itself in determining what the federal government should or should not have done. Joining us to talk about this and uh, lots more, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime, Bill. Good to talk to you. Let me ask you about uh, your impressions of what you heard from uh, the former chief. Uh, I, I almost got the sense that there was a, almost a sympathetic tone that, that, you know, we did all we can do. You know, we, we were the victims in situations like that. Uh, I'm not so sure people are going to buy that message. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that um, he, Peter Slowly was one of the people who, you know, the public really got to know during this whole thing like he was one of the most the names you would hear the most and i think when people were just initially thinking what is going on and why are the local police not kind of taking this and and shutting it down like getting control of this right away he's he was the chief right he was the one who everybody was kind of looking at and that that kind of horrifying moment when he said, I'm not sure there's a police response to this. And everyone says, well, then what kind of response are you thinking then? So I think um, for him, one thing I would say is, is it, for what it's worth, I don't know if it's worth anything. I thought he was an incredibly articulate person in that, you know, of lots of people have testified and it's hard sometimes to grab onto a narrative because they're responding to questions and it's like, well, what about this moment? And what about that moment? And it's hard to kind of piece it together to take away something. But he was, I thought, very effective at telling a story in a way that people could kind of, and as you say, like it kind of, maybe it comes across as as somewhat sympathetic as to something that you can grab onto and say, all right, I understand what you're saying. I understand what it was like to be you in that moment. But when you walk away and start comparing Slowly's testimony to other people's, and particularly what he says about the gaps in intelligence and the fact that he was not and could not have been prepared for what was going to happen, others are saying, no, there was enough intelligence by way of, you know, and, and enough to know about what was happening in terms of extremism and radicalization in the, some of the people who were there 
that there was enough information to be able to anticipate and therefore respond better. Well, and I got the same message, and I, I agree with you, by the way. He's very articulate and, and, and presented his arguments well. And uh, if, if you were to look at, at the presentation in and of itself, yeah, he, he gets marks for that. But it's the substance of it, I guess, that bothered me. Yeah. Because yeah. what he seemed to do was was basically contradict an awful lot of the testimony that we'd already heard uh, from from some security agencies and, and uh, intelligence agencies that said that they did have knowledge of this. They did tell Ottawa police uh, about, that there were some nefarious characters involved in this. And uh, they did know that a number of the people that were involved in this had booked hotel rooms for anywhere from 30 to 60 days. So I don't know where he gets the impression that, oh, they're, they're just going to be here and they'll, they'll go home on Sunday. Uh, you know, where, where's where's the rationale for that? And where's the proof that that was actually going to be happening? So it, it there's that that's, I think, what bothers a lot of people right now. It's a, we're listening to him on, over on Friday and we're thinking, well, wait a second. That's not the picture that's being painted so far. Mm hmm. Exactly. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there were a variety of people who were involved in the situation from a law enforcement perspective and from a political perspective. And there was certainly, you know, kind of a sense of, of awareness that this was in no way going to be a short term exercise. And even when you we, when people were in downtown Ottawa and you could see these giant trucks moving in, taking the wheels off the trucks like in what universe is that person going to pack up and leave soon? No, like they're, they are, this is like an encampment and the different things that were happening that were, you know, even if there was no official intelligence, like you could see as a person walking down the street, this is a, th this is an occupation. This is setting up. And so it's hard to fathom, you know, when you're listening to him and you have actually been in Ottawa the whole time and you've seen it, it's just sort of hard to figure out where that kind of idea is coming from that we, we didn't see this coming as a, a longer term thing that we were going to have to take a different kind of approach to. Now, the other thing is the end game of this is for there to be a determination about the rightness or wrongness or the appropriateness of the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. That said, there are lots of other sort of sub narratives or other things that will be achieved throughout this process, because it's a long one. And hearing from the witnesses, that's a, that takes six weeks. So, I mean, on some level, Peter Slowly has no particular interest in whether the federal government is found on the right side or the wrong side of this, because mm -hmm. that's not his problem and he doesn't have his job anymore anyway. But for him, I think he wants to get his narrative out there, which is human nature, right? Like he wants people to understand where he's coming from. But he, he painted a picture that, you know, that a bunch of hardworking, dedicated officers, and I, and, and I don't disagree with that. I, you know, I'm, Police are fabulous, and they do a great job serving and protecting communities right across the country. But uh, they didn't look that organized. And 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 we heard testimony previous to, to Mr. Slowly up on the stand uh, that essentially said there was a lot of infighting within Ottawa police itself uh, about yeah. who was in charge, who was going to make the calls there. He didn't paint that picture at all. He, everything was everybody seemed to be on the same page, and everything was running as as possibly. Uh, you know, efficiently as they could, and and that's not what we saw in the, in the TV pictures. And you were there, so. You, it, it just seems to contradict just about everything that, that we have developed as in, in what we've seen and heard over the last little while. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, like it's come up in, at various points in witness testimony so far about there being cracks in the local police force itself and slowly not really having control over everything. And some people, you know, kind of creating distance away from him. And so there wasn't a united police response to begin with, like whether it was effective or not. It was there was a lot of division within the police force that we've heard from other testimony. And that helps to explain why things went the way they did. But then even testimony from somebody like Jim Watson, who was saying, like, we couldn't get, you know, we without the Emergencies Act, 
we couldn't get trucks towed because people wouldn't wouldn't participate people wouldn't cooperate like and even just being on the ground and saying like like i and i know everybody knows that that day it was so frustrating that like a reporter got ticketed for trying to cover the thing and other people are parked in the middle of streets and taking you know and, and making a, a security situation and they weren't ticketed so there's a there's a common knowledge i think in ottawa or a common sense that you know the local police had levers at their disposal. They didn't use them. There may have been good reasons why, but that's the sense is that, you know, just the, the local response was problematic. And that's probably a big reason why it started to get kicked up to other levels. Well, and, and like I say, there's all sorts of speculation. I don't think he did a whole lot on Friday to try to clarify any of that. Because uh, mm -hmm. there are rumors, and you've heard them. You, know, you and I talked about this last week. Uh, some people feeling that some of the officers anyway were probably complicit in, in this whole exercise. They, they, thought that you know the anti-vax thing and and the protests against the government were fine as far as they were concerned don't know that nobody's shown any proof that's the case uh the other was interesting i got an, uh, an opinion from a, a guy i fed on who's been in law enforcement for many many years and he just kind of wondered i guess rhetorically uh, slowly was part of the toronto police services during the g20 uh, riots in downtown toronto a few years ago and he says i wonder if that just made rather reticent to jump in here and do anything uh, for fear of what might happen as a result. I, I don't know if there's any validity to that either, but we're not getting a whole lot of clarity here, are we? I know. I know what you mean, right? Like we we talk about this stuff and, and you can say things based on what you've heard and what you can see when you walk down the street and what makes sense to you. And I think that resonates with people, right? Like you walk down the street in Ottawa during something like this and you see what you see. You know for yourself whether this feels like a dangerous situation to you or not. You know for yourself whether it looks like the police have control over it. And we can all draw conclusions and then we can draw conclusions based on what other people are saying. But at the end of it, I mean, at this point, we've got weeks to go of more testimony. And I think we're going to hear pretty soon. I mean, slowly we'll be cross-examined today. So for those interested, you know, that's going to be very interesting. But we're also going to hear from convoy uh, participants and we'll hear from ministers on the political side and the federal level. And so... I just feel like there, as you say, right, there's, I don't feel any clarity at all. I feel like just, you know, we've heard a lot of what we heard before. There's a lot of competing messaging and there's a lot of people I think who are trying to kind of set the record straight from their own vantage point and it has really nothing to do with the outcome of the thing. But no, it just feels like nothing is any more clear than it was before. Are we going to hear from Doug Ford? I doubt it. I think he's going to stick his, you know, he doesn't want to do this, obviously. And I think he doesn't want, um, this is not the right use as far, as far as I'm concerned of parliamentary privilege. This is not why we have that. But um, I think that he so, uh, so much does not want to continue to repeat his line that he supports the prime minister's use of the Emergencies Act. Because whatever happens with this thing, it's going to be super partisan, even though the outcome, I mean, Justice Rollo doesn't care about the political outcome of it. That's not his problem. But the politicians will take the narratives, the scripts, the testimony from this, you know, multiple weeks of it and will use it for political purposes. And Doug Ford doesn't want to, you know, muddy the conservative message that this is a liberal appointee and this is a liberal, the whole exercise and blah, blah, blah. Like it's, I think he just doesn't want to, doesn't want to find himself there, but whether or not it's worth it to go through all this to avoid an appearance, I don't know. And I think his, his argument that, oh, this is a federal thing, not a provincial thing falls completely flat because all orders of government are at the table to talk about what happened. 
Well, uh, and he's going to fight that in quarter, so he says anyway. Yeah. So we'll see just how adamant they want to be about this. i got a couple of seconds left here. I want to ask you about another thing, but this is kind of brewing underneath here. But, I mean, the, the, the premiers are, are getting together, and they're talking as what you might expect about health care and, of course, the money that's supposed to be going into health care. Uh, story out of Ottawa the other day suggesting that the prime minister might actually at, at least attempt or threaten to freeze out Quebec and some other provinces uh, when it comes to healthcare money, if these guys don't uh, fall in line and, and do what they want to do here. Is that an idle threat or is, it, is he talking business here? Well, I mean, I think for the federal government, they the way that they've gone about federal-provincial relationships as much as they have been able to over, since Trudeau has been prime minister has been to do these bilateral things. And so you don't get one sweeping package for childcare, they they talk about it as a national thing, but then they go to each province and sort of shake hands one at a time, where they say, "Here are the specifics for you. Here's how you're going to do this, and here's how you're going to meet the requirements, and so we'll give you the money." So he does have this this way of dealing with them all one by one, as opposed to all together. So it wouldn't shock me from that perspective that he's saying, like, "I'm going to look specifically at the behavior of each province, and you're going to be held to account," type of thing. I also think that the government is trying to put on a bit of a crankier face now around money they're trying to say look we don't we don't have much and we it's time to belt tighten it's time to kind of deal with the the economics that that are presenting us right that are you know we're all stuck with right now and things are not easy and so hey if the provinces don't cooperate and meet the requirements for federal funding as as we've all you know as as we put out there then i think they might try to kind of at least play hardball in the public in the court of public opinion and say we're not going to let funds flow if you don't cooperate and, and Ontario actually is one of the most, uh, I, I guess, egregious, uh, you know, people who, are, especially when it comes to the childcare program, uh, doing it their own way, of taking the money and just say, "Leave us alone, let us do what they want." So I can see a showdown yeah. coming down the road here between the premier and uh, the prime minister, which uh, could have yeah. an impact on some other policies as well. It's going to be a rather interesting week to see how that develops. Uh, not all eyes are on the inquiry. There's a lot of other business going on in Ottawa. Uh, Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Have a good weekend. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Definitely, and happy Halloween. And to you too. Dr. Laurie <laughs> Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. He's only been in charge a couple of days, but, uh, uh, well, Twitter's never going to be the same. Let's put it that way. Uh, Elon Musk, of course, who was the new owner of Twitter, uh, has already tweeted out, uh, since deleted, an unfounded anti-LGBTQ conspiracy theory on Sunday morning about the attack of the uh, husband of uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, from a, a website that has a history of publishing false information. Uh, so uh, so much for, I guess, uh, Musk's assertion that he was going to try to clean up the process. There's a lot going on here and a lot of controversy. Joining us to talk about this is Marcus Kolga, the director of disinfowatch.org and also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Marcus, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I, I guess we should not be surprised at all. If Musk knows how to do anything, it stir things up. And uh, this is going to be a different kind of Twitter, isn't it? Yeah, Elon Musk has a uh, seems to have a pattern uh, and history of injecting himself into issues and debates where he has um, no uh, background history or experience. And uh, unfortunately, you know, given the uh, dire uh, situation in our information environment, we have someone who's a free speech absolutist um, who uh, wants to open up Twitter uh, to all forms of misinformation, disinformation now. And, uh, you know, just as when, at a moment when we should be taking care to clean up our information environment, 
um, this seems to uh, this is a curveball, and uh, it, things could only get worse. Well, among many other things, I think one of the main things people were concerned about is, like you said, accountability. Uh, if he took mm. over, and, uh, and and it seems somewhat contradictory for him to be even thought of as the guy that that might want to clean up the process a little bit, because he was he was the king of controversy and and the king of uh, lack of accountability for the longest time, and, and apparently still is. Yeah, look, it's 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 really unfortunate. Uh, Twitter, I think, over the past uh, year, year and a half or so, has really done a a very good job of moderating content, figuring innovative ways to um, to clean up uh, that uh, information space. Uh, you know, this is they've been doing this by labeling inauthentic, uh, taking down inauthentic uh, content, but also labeling uh, foreign media like uh, Russian state media, Chinese state media. So they've, I think they've, they're coming. They have come close to striking a balance between protecting freedom of speech um, and also protecting the the media environment. Um, you know, Elon Musk has also you know claimed that he is going to um, uh, update and modernize and revise Twitter's policies uh, to ensure that the platform doesn't become a quote unquote hellscape. But it seems like whatever moderation he has planned is only intended for others, not for himself. Because as you mentioned, um, you know, just this Sunday he he posted this link to. Uh, an outlet that is known to have uh, promoted uh, disinformation, conspiracy theories. And apparently in 2016, that same platform claimed that Hillary Clinton was dead and that during a debate with Donald Trump, a body double uh, was representing her. Um, and so for, for someone like that who tweets from a platform that uh, promotes those sorts of, I mean, and it's not just misinformation. This is this is extreme conspiracy theory disinformation um for someone to be tweeting that sort of content uh and to be an owner the owner of twitter is uh is of course deeply concerning so uh, i'm i'm not uh, entirely optimistic the fact that he has uh fired much of the uh, previous team you know uh, i think we need to be prepared for what uh, what uh, elon musk says that he's going to prevent uh, a hellscape from emerging but it seems like a hellscape is that is exactly where we're, we are headed. And, and even those uh, executions, as one person described them, of the former executive members of Twitter, I mean, he claims that wasn't him, uh, that that was done before he officially took over. So you can take that for what it's worth. Uh, a couple of other prominent names, though, that uh, that have had problems with uh, social media, uh, one being Donald Trump, uh, who, of course, mm -hmm. has been banned from Twitter. Uh, the other is Kanye West, uh, who is uh, right now, I guess, the reigning king of misinformation. Uh, he would, got his wrist slapped. Uh, there's a concern right now that uh, that Musk would welcome uh, Trump back, certainly, and 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 the likes of Conway or Kanye West as well, simply because they he, he seems to thrive, I guess, Marcus, on on the controversy. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he's these are uh, you know, for for lack of a better term, I mean, in, information extremists. Donald Trump has long exploited the the media environment to advance his own political interests. He is used disinformation, trafficked in disinformation and conspiracies, um, and exploited um, the freedom of expression in, in the United States uh, to, to advance his, uh, his political goals. Um, Kanye West is just, uh, I mean, he's, he's just, I don't understand where, where, where he's coming from. Uh, the fact that he's been trafficking in the same sort of uh, disinformation, conspiracies, anti-Semitic, uh, and quite frankly, racist uh, information, is disturbing if uh and it wouldn't surprise me in in the least if uh elon musk 
were to um, uh, allow these two individuals and many others, perhaps thousands of others who be, had their Twitter accounts banned, to start using the platform. Because um, I think that the way that Elon Musk sees this is that these uh, very controversial figures uh, attract eyeballs. Um, Donald Trump has a very large following. Kanye West has a large following. And so the more users that Elon Musk has on his platform that he's invested you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into, the better, better off he is. I think that he sees this as, a, as not just, you know, if it's maybe perhaps there's an element that is a freedom of speech issue, but quite frankly, I mean, this is profit and revenue uh, driven. That's, that's what he's looking at. So if you combine those two things, it's a, sort of a perfect storm. And I would be shocked if those, um, those two individuals and, and other controversial uh, Twitter, former Twitter users weren't allowed back onto the platform. I, I'm just wondering where this is going to end up down the road here. And uh, I guess it, the, the, the crisis point's coming a lot faster than maybe a lot of people have anticipated. But I remember you yeah. and I had a conversation years ago about, well, Facebook, when it was uh, discovered, of course, that the, the Russians were using that on a pretty regular basis to try to influence yeah. American elections and, and, and the Brexit deal, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people bailed on Facebook and a lot of prominent people uh, made it public that they were bailing on Facebook. And, and they, I don't know if they're over that yet, but do you see the same sort of thing happening on Twitter where people are just going to say, that's it, I'm out of here? Uh, that's a great question. I, I don't know, but I think that is the answer <clears throat> for sure. Um, you know, advertisers, if advertisers, you know, if these advertisers that are on Twitter have a moral conscience, they might uh, they might consider just pulling their advertising en masse. They may consider doing this together as a, as a group, as a coalition. Um, other prominent Twitter users might consider, you know, publicly stating that they are either putting their accounts into a more, you know, having a moratorium on their use of, of Twitter or just pulling their, their Twitter accounts uh, altogether. Because that is the only way that we're going to, you know, ultimately uh, affect any sort of positive change on any of these social media platforms. Because, again, they're, they're all revenue driven. They require eyeballs. That's what that's what they're. That's the um, business model that they're based on. And so if, if you have these prominent accounts leave the platform, that means that the eyeballs are going to go with them. And that's something that, um, that they simply can't tolerate. So, you know, that, that is one solution. Uh, I think it has to be highly coordinated. And, I mean, it would be wonderful if, if, if we could uh, all together in a grassroots sort of way hold these, uh, these platforms to account. But, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't change the underlying problem, which is that um, there is a large segment of, uh, of the North American uh, Canadian population that, um, that believes in, in this disinformation conspiracy and these conspiracy, conspiracy theories. Um, they, they share this information on social media. And I think this is the, the larger problem that we have to, to look at is that how do we uh, help that group come back to reality? And how do we inoculate the rest of the population to ensure that that group doesn't grow? Because it has been steadily growing for the past three or four years. You and I have talked about this over and over again. Um, so a real focus has to be on, on doing that, the inoculation, and, uh, and making sure that um, we work all together, that the government and others take a, a whole of society approach, start to see if we can talk to some of these social media platforms. You know, maybe you know, if, we can, if we can connect with Facebook and others that are prominent, uh, and get them to work with us to try and uh, inoculate our population, clean up the information environment. That's that's key, and that's what we need to start looking at right now. Well, and of course, there's going to be a pushback on that. Uh, just to use the Facebook example again, Zuckerberg pushed back immediately when when people started to bail out on that and, and got very defensive. Yeah. Uh, I, I can see Musk pulling the same routine here. 
Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, again, this is it's all about revenue. Um, and and as we mentioned earlier, he's Musk himself is a free speech absolutist. He believes that anything should be allowed to go. So I'm not uh, certainly in in the case of Twitter, where it was a real I think leader among social media platforms in cleaning actively cleaning up the information environment, working with civil society actors like myself. I mean, I was in constant communication with Twitter um, and they were very um, actively engaged. Uh, their reporting mechanisms for, um, for disinformation and inauthentic accounts was robust and, uh, and they acted very quickly on, on any sort of reports. Um, I think that that system is going to break down. Um, clearly, you know, Elon Musk is not interested in maintaining that system. It costs money. Um, it may also cost viewers, uh, the platform viewers, that is. And so um, I, I don't think that that's going to be maintained. I think it's that system is going to be broken down. And I think it's going to become much harder for us now with, uh, with this change in leadership at Twitter um, to work with them and get them to cooperate uh, in, in, our, you know, in our common efforts to try and, and clean up um, the social media information um, hellscape, as, as Musk has called it. Uh, I, I just see it getting worse at this point. Uh, so do I. It's going to be a, a next very interesting next couple of weeks. Marcus, as always, thank you so much for this. I always appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. Marcus Colgan, director of disinformwatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, talking about Elon Musk's uh, first few days, uh, rocky first few days, of course, as the, uh, the new boss of Twitter. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Horrific events in one... Uh, Washington and, uh, well, more specifically in San Francisco last week, of course, uh, at the house of uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, that we're going to get to in a second. I guess one of the most frustrating and, and frightening elements about this is uh, is how this story was spun uh, for political purposes not too long after it broke. Uh, joining us to talk about this and, and a lot more in the uh, political scene south of the border is uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the uh, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, a very busy time. Thanks so much for the time this morning. Good morning. It took literally minutes, I guess, if you were spinning around the uh, the TV dials, uh, watching, uh, well, Fox News, CNN, whatever it was, uh, for this to become a political tool. And, of course, we're talking about the tragic attack on uh, the, the husband of uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Paul Pelosi, who was attacked in his home uh, by an individual with a hammer and uh, severely injured in situations like this. Uh, all of a sudden, it became a, a Republican talking point on Fox News anyway, uh, that this is because the Democrats are soft on crime. The Democrats seem to respond uh, right off the bat that, no, this is what's going on with the, the weaponization of social media. And uh, lost in all this thing, of course, was the human tragedy. But I guess uh, during the midterms, uh, a rather testy uh, campaign that's going on right now, I guess all is, love and, uh, all is fair in love and war, including an injury and a tragic situation like this. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, we should point out that there was some vocal condemnation of what took place uh, with that attack on uh, on Paul Pelosi from Democrats, but also including from some leading Republicans, Lindsey Graham, uh, Mitch McConnell, former Vice President Mike Pence, even the former president himself uh, kind of stayed silent at first, but piped up over the weekend to hit back on that violence and say that it was simply um, it that it was it was 
unnecessary, that it was vicious, that it was uh, that it was appalling and that there's no place for that across uh, America. Some other Republicans kind of danced around their inability or ability to try and kind of keep this out of the political sphere. Uh, but this is what is expected. And you're right. This is a result of um, of a weaponization of social media, but it is also a weaponization of the kind of vitriol that Republicans have thrown against the House Speaker for the last two years. You know, over the weekend, uh, Bill, we heard from Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, obviously somebody who is no stranger to controversy. She pushed back at the violence against Paul Pelosi, to which Democrats then immediately slammed her to say, you are somebody who in the past has called for the hanging of the House Speaker for what she believed to be an act of treason. So this is, you know, sure, it's social media, but this is Republicans who have spent the last two years um, demonizing Democrats, including the House Speaker. And ultimately, we are now seeing what played out because of that. The, the recounting of the story here is, is really frightening. I mean, you know, breaking into the House in the middle of the night, uh, wait for Nancy, going to wait for Nancy. I mean, which which very much reminded everybody, of course, of the chant that was going on uh, during the insurrection in Washington. Absolutely. I mean, like frighteningly uh, similar to hear where is Nancy as this person is standing in her uh, California home. You know, for, for, for anyone who doesn't realize, Nancy Pelosi at the time was in Washington uh, D.C., nowhere near uh, her home in, in in San Francisco. But again, this became a kind of, um, you know, calling point for Republicans to say, well, look, this is more violence, more crime that's taking place in uh, a Democratic-led city, whether it's San Francisco or Chicago or New York. The former president over the weekend, you know, saying that what's happening on the streets of America is, quote unquote, worse than what did take place and is taking place across Afghanistan. So this is becoming a kind of rallying point for Republicans to say this is why we need to get Democrats out. But again, as you mentioned, and and rightfully so, it really kind of ignores the, the human aspect of this, that somebody was uh, injured, that somebody was hurt. But to kind of bring it back to what Republicans think about this, uh, Governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, over the weekend, you know, while condemning the violence, sort of, he also made a point of saying, well, look, we're just going to send Nancy Pelosi back to California where she can be with her husband. So condemning it, but at the same time saying, we're just get rid of Democrats. And of course, none of this will happen again. Problem being, Bill, you know, Republicans are good at talking. Sometimes they're not great at actually putting a plan on paper to say, here's what we're actually going to do. Has this started a conversation, though, about security, Reggie? I and mean, this is not the first time something like this has happened. We've had elected officials. I, I well, Gabby Griffiths comes to mind a number of years ago when he, she was shot in the head at a shopping mall. She survived, thankfully. Uh, but others have been victimized by this uh, as well. And and the, 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 the security that's in place or lack of security in some people's minds uh, has become a real problem. And, uh, and it, is there a discussion now that maybe they need to increase security around elected officials because of, uh, of incidents like this? I, I mean, look, this is a conversation, but at the same time, there is a reality as well. Paul Pelosi is not an elected official. Uh, and while the House Speaker is, and in fact is third in line to the presidency after the president and the vice president, she herself has um, a pretty hyped up security detail wherever she is, but that doesn't extend beyond the House Speaker to um, to her home, you know, in California, her homes, plural, uh, or to her husband. And, you know, there is a conversation. Do we need to put a secondary layer of uh, security at buildings where 
uh, political people might not be occupying at that point. You know, it becomes a matter of cost. It becomes a matter of, of optics when it comes to the price tag that could be associated with that. But at the same time, there is a conversation of why do we need to put secondary and tertiary bits of security details for these people when at the end of the day, this violence is being caused by the rhetoric uh, that is being put out on social media, being put out at public in, in campaign rallies. This may not happen if we didn't have, you know, Representative X or Senator Y saying, uh, you know, unnecessary or or kind of fear-mongering, hate-filled uh, speech against these people. It's kind of one conversation takes place, but does it need to take place if the other conversation is listened to? Well, and I know that it has gone on in some instances. Uh, well, over the weekend, I saw the story about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, of course, who is a very controversial figure uh, and received so many death threats that she has round-the-clock security team. Now, I, I assume that's that's covered in her budget. Uh, they make some allocation for that. But it's a sad commentary, Reggie, that elected officials have to fear for their lives if they're going to go out in public or even if they want to go home for a weekend. I, I mean, and not even elected officials, Bill. I mean, let's let's go down a couple of rungs uh, on the ladder when it comes to democracy across this country. It is people who are dealing with elections. It's election workers. It's election um, observers. It is anybody who may have to do with the process of getting somebody elected. There is um, you know, a quote unquote target that has been placed on any number of people uh, because they may see what is real. And if somebody sees something that they don't think is real, like uh, a stolen election, or they think that a Democrat has done something that is, uh, you know, wrong for, for what reason they've been told that it's wrong, that now puts um, a list, uh, rather a hit on uh, a potential on even more people. So this goes far beyond just the average um, you know, lawmaker or or even leading lawmaker. This goes right down to the heart of the people who are trying to run and hold and be elected across this country. Uh, it has now been compromised because of what has taken place over the last couple of years. Want to talk about the impact this uh, this incident may have on the on the midterms, which are not that far away now, just a few days away. Uh, and and the, the the fact that the the Republicans immediately spun this into uh, Democrats being weak on crime bills and 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 things of this nature, which has been a part of their mantra, I guess, for a long time right now, but it seems to be effective. Reggie, what's going on? Well, I mean, look, there, there's polling out there that shows that the, a, a growing number of Americans do have a fear uh, about crime, whether it is in their own backyard or whether it is across the country. And that is because the airwaves have been flooded by uh, political advertisements that are talking about just how dangerous and how deadly American streets uh, can be. And that is having an impact across you know, a vast majority of the Republicans. But it's also starting to bleed into some of the independent voters as well. And that becomes problematic for Democrats. Democrats, because a lot of these people live out in the suburbs and there are now ads targeting uh, suburban women who may be told that, you know, their neighborhood, their backyard, their city, their community is now filled with violent criminals and that Republicans are going to uh, go after that and, and try to fix that because they say that Democrats aren't. Uh, but there is polling out there that shows, you know, 50 percent, 56 percent of Americans think that crime in their area has gone up. That is higher from 2021. That is higher from 2020. And, you know, crime is kind of 
you know, uh, it, it needs, it's in, in the eye of the observer as to, you know, how devastating or big or bad a crime might be. The fact is Republicans are using this to their advantage uh, and Democrats really haven't done much to try and push back at the look, America is not as deadly and dangerous as we've heard the former president and Republicans saying. Problem is people aren't listening to the Democrats. They're listening to the Republicans. And and obviously you would think that uh, this would you know be overshadowed by the economy, and I guess to a certain extent it is. Uh, people still concerned about uh, you know putting food on the table and paying the bills, etc. But when you get into the last couple of days, uh, the rhetoric obviously gets ramped up. It's sort of the big guns come out uh, to try to sway those, uh, as you say, people that may be sitting on the fence. Uh, I know the president said he's going to be doing a lot of uh, intense campaigning. I guess crisscrossing around the country. Uh, and former President Barack Obama was on the campaign hustings. Uh, does he he still have that that gravitas with voters, Reggie? He does. Uh, he still has an ability to draw out the younger base. He has an ability to obviously draw out the base that put him and Joe Biden uh, in the White House uh, and the vice presidency uh, over two consecutive terms. But he also has that ability to reach out to moderates. That is where um, Joe Biden said that he was going to kind of excel in his administration, that he would be able to reach across the aisle. And it's been a difficult and a tough slog for him to do that. But getting Barack Obama out on the campaign trail, uh, this is important, especially in races that have all of a sudden become uh, far closer than Democrats wanted them to be, whether it's in Wisconsin or or Michigan in the governor's race uh, or in uh, something like New York, where even the governor, Kathy Hochul, uh, is potentially going to find herself in a far closer um, uh, uh, race. That is why you're seeing the president and the former president hit the campaign trail to say, look, Democrats do have a proven track record of ensuring that the country is going to move in the right direction. And this goes back to what we had said uh, about trying what Republicans intend to do when it comes to something like uh, dealing with crime. We heard it from former President Obama that Republicans will say, uh, you know, Democrats are the problem when it comes to crime. We're going to fix it for you. But as he says, Republicans don't put anything on paper and then they don't have anything to actually put into action when they are in uh, when they are or if they are in power. Nonetheless, having Obama on the campaign trail in state after state after state does work to potentially help draw out some of the base that may have been a little weary. Uh, on the other side of the fence, Donald Trump was uh, campaigning over the last few days. I'm not, I'm not so sure if he's campaigning for the Republicans or just for himself, Reggie. He hasn't really been clear on that uh, in the last little while. But the, the campaign stop in Florida was uh, instructive, shall we say, uh, because uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of the state, was not invited to the rally. Marco Rubio was there, or the senator for, for that state. Uh, is is uh, Trump sending uh, DeSantis a message here that he's getting a little bit uh, too close to him? And and with his, well, he's, DeSantis hasn't announced that he wants the Republican nomination, but he's certainly leaning in that direction. Uh, he, he absolutely didn't announce that, especially when he was asked that by Charlie Chris during the debate uh, yeah. uh, last week when he said, are you trying to eye 2024 and you're not going to give a full term? Ron DeSantis sat silent. But I think this kind of uh, poking the bear between the two of them, between Trump and DeSantis. This has been going on for a while. We've seen Ron DeSantis hit back at the policies that were put in place to deal with the pandemic under the Trump administration. While they have not really exchanged kind of difficult, hardwired barbs uh, when it comes to each other, this is something that is slowly coming to a boil on the back burner and is eventually going to have to play out uh, in real time. I think it's, you know, a little remarkable and bizarre at the same time that you have Donald Trump on, uh, you know, the, the the kind of stumping tour for Marco Rubio, somebody that he kind of, you know, put down uh, repeatedly 
during the 2016 uh, campaign and has not said nice things about unless there's something nice that's been said about Donald Trump in return uh, to not be inviting Ron DeSantis shows that there potentially is a fear amongst either Donald Trump or the Trump campaign that Ron DeSantis is going to use the uh, the base that he has built up over the last few years to his advantage. This might be the state that the former president lives in, but this is the state that the current governor runs and has run for years and has worked to try and um, bring in as many people as he can. So this is going to become a heated, heated debate if and when this finally happens. And I know that's you know, obviously it's going to be two years until the next general election uh, with the midterms just a few days away now. But you would think that at some point somebody's got to jump off uh, the horse here and make an announcement, whether it's going to be Trump or DeSantis. Uh, and Mike Pence is still there in the shadows. Is he, he, he has not uh, given us any idea as to what his future is right now, although he hasn't dis- denied anything at this stage. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody's kind of treating this the same way that the current president is, that there may be an intent on running, but nobody's putting their foot into cement right now, uh, whether it's Mike Pence, whether it's someone like Ted Cruz or even uh, Ron DeSantis. But there are a growing number of people who are going to try to potentially take on uh, the, the, the kind of political baggage that the former president will bring with him to the campaign trail. They just they also understand that there are optics here. If they go after the former president, you know, they are going to become the victims of attacks. And the Trump base is difficult to move into a direction that Trump doesn't want them to move into. Uh, So this potentially could become politically problematic for someone like Ron DeSantis or someone like Ted Cruz or even the former vice president, because Donald Trump is just um, is the clear winner in the eyes uh, of the base. But I think we are seeing things start to build up. Ron DeSantis in recent days has been on the trail stumping for candidates, including someone like Lee Zeldin uh, in New York for uh, the governor. These are people who the former president may not be going after. They are people who the, the former president did not give an endorsement to. But having Ron DeSantis on the campaign trail shows that he is a different Republican. He is a different person and that potentially is willing to take on the former president potentially trying to say to the Republican base, look at me over here. Don't just always look at something sparkly off to the left. It's uh, going to be uh, quite a week down in uh, the nation's capital right now. And we'll be watching for your reporting, of course, on Global National. Reggie, thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for uh, Global News down in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, quick email from uh, Alexis here, too, says, uh, let me guess, Capitol Police are not required to provide round-the-clock detail for any Republicans other than the leaders says, although I don't agree with much of anything the squad espouses, at least they don't believe in murdering their political opponents. Uh, it's the, the, the hypocrisy and the double standard is absolutely right. Uh, very good. Oh, and on that point, uh, it, as Alexis points out in her email, uh, it's not Secret Service. It is Capitol Police that supply the security for uh, members of Congress. And, uh, and that's in itself a problem these days because apparently they're understaffed. Uh, an awful lot of uh, Capitol Police have quit the job after what happened on January 6th a couple of years ago. And uh, it's pretty tough recruiting, apparently. Nobody seems to want to work in that capacity anymore. So that's a, a problem they're going to have to address. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.